Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Wednesday, February the 7th, 2024. Just back from Washington, D.C. Had some interesting conversations there with people about the idea of America having a collective psychology uh, and whether we can interpret the mood in America in psychological terms. One person who's given a great deal of thought to the idea of countries, nations having psychologies is my guest today, uh, Ayelet Goshen. Uh, sorry, Ayelet Gunda Goshen is one of Israel's leading writers. She's also a clinical psychologist. Uh, and she is joining us from Tel Aviv. Uh, Ayelet, um, your latest book, uh, The Wolf Hunter novel, we'll get to in a few minutes. But you're both an author and a clinical psychologist. You've given a great deal of thought to the impact, um, the traumatic impact on uh, the events in October last year on Israel, your country. Do countries have psychologies? Can they be interpreted in psychological terms? I think very much so. I mean, we can talk about the national psych, about the American national psych, about the Israeli national psych. And when we talk about collective trauma, um, then I, I think very much so. We can talk about a, an entire nation or entire country suffering from PTSD, from post-traumatic stress disorder. We can talk about collective denial. So many defense mechanisms and many psychological phenomena that we know in individuals, we can definitely see in countries. I think it was Plato uh, in his book Polis that talked about how if you want to see uh, what's inside a human being, you have to look at the city. It's also It also goes the other way around, right? If you look at the city and you look at the human being, you understand something bigger about the human society. Some people might say, well, I'm different from my neighbor. I'm different from other people who, like me, hold an Israeli or a, an American passport. Uh, what about that more liberal take, the idea that Every country is made up of individuals, and, and, and the idea of a collective psychology is um, not just absurd, but also dangerous in terms of individual identity and rights. I think the idea of collective identity doesn't wipe out the differences between individual. It doesn't uh, say that there's no such thing as individual identity. It only means that... Um, not only that we have our own individual identity, we also have a collective identity. Just as we can say that when you're in a family, you have your own family tradition, you have your family norms, you have your family mythology as a family. This doesn't mean that the individuals of the family can't vary very much from one another. So I think you're right to say that you're different from your neighbor, and I would never dare to say that all Americans or all Israelis or all French are the same. But then again, I think when you travel, you, you quite often feel this, the, the idea of cultural differences. And we also know it from researchers in the psychological, in social psychology, that we can see um, psychological differences between different groups, between different countries. Um, I can give you an example. In Hebrew, my language, the language we speak in Israel, 
we have no word in Hebrew for small talk. It is not translated into Hebrew. There is no Hebrew term for that. We have no word in Hebrew for tact, being tactful. Um, we never translated this word into Hebrew. And I think it's a cultural difference. On the other way around in America, I don't think you have a translation to the word, the Yiddish word of chutzpah, the Jewish chutzpah, uh, or to the Hebrew and Arabic word of being dugri, which is being very direct in a way that I think in America would be considered rude. But if you act dugri in Israeli society, you're considered honest. Um, so you do have like differences between individuals, but you do have cultural tendencies. I don't think we can ignore that. I'm just back, uh, Ayala. I'm just Ayala. I'm I'm just back um, from uh, New York. The idea uh, that the the Yiddish word chutzpah doesn't exist in America seems I don't know where you've been. Maybe <laughs> I'm in Kansas or or Alabama mm. or Mississippi. But uh, can one really? Talking, I, I want to get to the, the psychological state of Israel, particularly after the events of October and today. But can one really, do you think, generalize about a country like America that is so profoundly diverse, everything from New York City to, uh, to the Midwest, to the Deep South? Um, I think whenever you make a generalization, you'll most probably be proved wrong within maximum an hour. I would even dare to say that when I meet individuals in the clinic or I work in a mental health hospital, whenever you try to think that you can make a generalization about this specific person's character, about one person's character, something will come and surprise you. Someone who you thought was ruthless can come and be compassionate in a way that will surprise you or the other way around somebody that you always found very compassionate and empathic can come and present a whole different side so there is something very dangerous in talking about americans and talking about israelis and also i think when we feel that people put us in a box when they relate to one aspect of our personality and, and define us by this trait and don't recognize the the variety that we have inside one individual but on the other way around, I feel that if we say something like you can never generalize, you can never say something wider about a culture, then we're also missing something. Because I think when you travel long enough, when you meet people from different countries, you do sense after a while certain norms that, that vary between cultures. I, I can give you a classical um, example on social psychology of the term I. How much do I use the, the word I in a sentence? How much do we use um, the, the collective phrase? And you can say, okay, this is just linguistics. But we can say, no, linguistics also indicates something about the mind they represent. How much focus do we put on me in caps lock? And how much focus do we put on us? Your last book, uh, The Wolf Hunt, a novel, uh, is set in the United States. Um, is it in some ways uh, your attempt to write about America, not just as an author, but as a clinical psychologist? What's your take on the mood in America? Uh, and, and how does that manifest itself in uh, Wolf Hunt? 
For me, growing up in Israel, America was a symbol. Long before I ever set foot in America, you know, we're 16 hours away from one another, 16 hours flight. Uh, there's an entire globe in the middle. And yet I knew certain places in America far better than I knew places in Israel. Um, you know, just the other neighborhood in Israel, I, I visited every time, but I didn't remember it as vividly as I remembered New York, even though I first visited New York when I was 18. But I was there long before. It felt familiar. Um, just like LA felt familiar, California felt familiar, more familiar than, um, I would say, Jerusalem, even though I live 50 minutes from Jerusalem. Because America was really the, you know, what many Israeli dreams are made of. So we watched American TV, we listened to American music. This was the empire. And many people wanted to be part of the empire. And I think it's very interesting because for many years for Jews living in exile, um, Israel was the promised land. They were praying, the Orthodox Jews were praying with their faces to the east because this is where Jerusalem is. And now that the Jews finally got their promised land and you have a Jewish and Israeli state, you see so many Israelis facing the West and praying in a way or worshiping the West. So that I think for many Israelis, the ultimate Israeli dream would be to live the American dream. And once again, this is a generalization. I wouldn't say this is the way for all Israelis. But then again, I think for many educated, secular, liberal Israelis, um, the American dream is, is today very appealing. And for me as an Israeli, it was really interesting to explore this dream. Um, and when I arrived to America, the gap between the images and the dream and between what I found when I was living in America, uh, this really shocked me. This was one of the things that initiated the writing of The Wolf Hunt. It's ironic, uh, Ayelet. Um, we've done a number of shows about the death of the American dream. And here you are as an Israeli coming to America to write a book or imagining America, writing a book about the American dream as an outsider, someone looking in. Does that dream, did it ever exist? And what exactly is it? I think for many Israelis, the American dream would be the idea. And once again, it's a dream. We're not talking about reality, right? We're talking about a very strong... But you're fantasy. a psychologist, so you're good on dreams. Yeah, I think the thing with dreams is that on the one hand, it's not reality. And I think the moment I, I set foot in America, I realized that the huge difference between the American dream and between what America is. But then again, when we talk about dreams, and you're right when, when you're referring to the clinic, the fact that the dream never happened in reality doesn't make it less real than our daily experiences. I mean, some of our dreams are more important than what actually happened to us today because they have our biggest longings, our biggest passions, our biggest fears, and, and they shape our lives even if they're not real. So when you're asking me if the American dream is real, I, I would definitely say no. But it is real psychologically in that it, you know, it motivates people, it drives people. Sometimes it drives people mad while they're trying to achieve something which you can never achieve. But as a fuel, it's, I think it's definitely live and kicking as a fuel. You talked about nations and families and knowing them you've argued that all too often um we don't know our families as well as we'd like the book wolf hunt the wolf hunt is about knowing one's family knowing 
one's children. In a way, it kind of brings to mind uh, Lionel Shriver's book, We Need to Talk About Kevin. Did this book influence you? And tell us a little bit about The Wolf Hunt. How would you describe the book? Wolf Hunt tells the story of an Israeli family relocating to America. The mother uh, is tired of Israel, is tired of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. She just wants to raise her child in a safe place. And she thinks California is, will be the safe place for her and her family. Uh, she first meets um, a terror attack in California that shakens her concept of America as a safe place. So she sends her child to learn self-defense. And she gradually starts to suspect that maybe when she wanted her child to be able to protect himself against of, uh, terrorists or against of anti-Semitism, she unintentionally led him to take the role of the victimizer instead of the victim. She starts to ask herself, could it be that her child was involved in a hate crime against a black boy from his school? Could it be that her own child, the one that he wa she wanted to protect so much, is actually the wolf? Could it be that he's a killer? Sounds to me, in metaphorical terms, a lot more of a, a narrative about Israel than American. You know, it's interesting because the wolf hunt was translated to, I think, 15 languages. And in some of the countries I visited, people saw the novel as an Israeli novel, as a novel about uh, the blind spots of the Israeli people. Uh, just as the mother asks herself, could I be blind to my own violence or to the violence inside my house? So they saw it as, as a novel about the, the Israeli society. But in some of the countries, people said, we can read this as parents and parent as you know a father child or mother child relationship which is i think a universal one and we can talk about the blind spots that every nation has to her own acts of violence i think sometimes it can be too easy to read the novel as a novel about those israelis rather than to look at the novel as an invitation to look at a mirror of your own country We've done many, many shows on those blind spots in some ways in Israel, but more in America, the blind spots, of course, of slavery, of the wiping out of indigenous peoples, of many of the other injustices. In your experience in coming to America and writing about America in reading about America, um, is America distinguished by those blind spots or is it no better or worse than any other country, maybe bigger, more powerful, more emotional? That's a good question. I, I think there's something very interesting about America. I, I, when, when we lived in, in San Francisco, it was when Trump was, was elected. And what I found inspiring as an Israeli was the civil society and how strongly it opposed so I thought, you know, these are the people who, who put Trump to power. But not but in San Francisco. Uh, sorry to interrupt. Not in San Francisco. Yeah. I live in San Francisco. I'm talking to you from there. I, I don't think there's anyone in the city who voted for Trump. Or if they do, they keep their mouth shut. And, and I think, like, watching the people in San Francisco for me as an Israeli was quite inspiring because I thought they're not sitting there whining. They're not sitting there being cynical and and just hating the other people who voted for him but you know sitting in the living room and, and whining about what's going on they're actually going out to the street and trying to change things through, through the education system 
um, through marches, through protests. So I, I remember when I came back to Israel after my time in America, I thought maybe this is something that we have to remember here, how to fight against something that you disagree with um, in a civilized way, but, but still fight. I mean, not to lose your hope and to turn into cyn uh, being cynical. And there is something about America, when I look at it from the outside, um, it's not cynic. Um, I mean, you can see, find cynicism in people, but there are still many people willing to fight in order to change things. And, and for me, when I looked at it, it was inspiring. I mean, when the Israeli um, legal coup started uh, with Netanyahu's government and many Israelis took it to the street to protect democracy, um, I found it, I know, like waking up after such a long time. And, and I felt a bit of like this energy that I felt in San Francisco when I was there. Uh, Ayala, as, as a parent, the challenge of knowing one's children is, of course, a Sisyphean. It, it seems almost impossible, just as probably we it's, it's equally Sisyphean to know one's parents. Um, you, you write in this book and in your work about knowing our families. It's rather like knowing our nations, isn't it? Or perhaps even knowing ourselves. It comes back to, to your question about blind spots. And the idea that, you know, with the way we built, we cannot visually grasp everything. It's true for individuals. There's always a blind spot. It's humiliating, I think, to, to, to each time discover a new blind spot. Um, and I think it's just as humiliating as a nation to find out that you constructed this whole narrative about who you are, and then you're forced to realize that there's a part of you that you were never willing to acknowledge. And I think as parents, it's especially interesting because as parents, part of our job is to have a blind spot. I think part of a mother's role when she looks at her baby is to say, oh, he's so cute, regardless to how objectively cute he is. So it's almost as if in order to give unconditional love to your child, you're supposed to be blind to certain elements of him. But then again, if you're too blind, then you, you're growing someone in your house that you don't really know, that you don't really know what he's capable of. And I think many parents today choose to be blind to their kids. It's like what we Google, right? Most parents, I think, today would Google how to raise a child that feels good about himself. Most parents Google that and not how to raise a child who is a good parent, a good person. Most parents will ask themselves, was my child happy at school? We wouldn't ask ourselves, was my child making other people happy or was he making other people miserable we're much more concerned about his well-being than about you know how well he's treating others and and i think in this we're creating a huge blind spot and then we're paying the price for that as families and also as societies you're thinking about the bible i'm sure at least the old testament a book you're all too familiar with the notion of, of blindness is always used as a warning, as a form of punishment, but maybe it's meant metaphorically rather than actually losing our sight. Blindness is, is the metaphor that, as you suggest, 
is a horrible punishment, but it's also something that allows us to live because if we're not blind to some things, then we go insane. It's really interesting that you're saying that because one of my favorite stories, um, I think about it like it's the first detective story is Oedipus, uh, Sophocles Oedipus. And I think about Oedipus as the first detective because, you know, he was a king and then there was the plague on the city and he realized that the plague comes because the, the former king was slaughtered and he has to find out who killed him. So it's like a whodunit. And he's investigating and he's searching and he wants to see and he wants to know the truth. And I think it's no wonder that, that the private detective, the icon, is the person looking you know, looking with the, I don't know how you call it in English, what do they hold, the private detectives? You know what I'm talking about? Uh, well, some of the glass, the glass that makes you uh, see bigger things when you search yeah, for the clues. microscope, uh, the, the looking microscope. glass, yeah. Uh, so it's Poirot or Sherlock Holmes. That's why we yeah. fetishize As and fantasize the, the detective because they're the only ones, they do the looking when we can't look. And of course, in the Bible, the idea of, being blinded if you look too carefully. Yeah, and then you think about, I mean, Oedipus, he's looking so precisely. That's what makes him so smart, right? He wants to find the killer. But if we think about the ending of Oedipus, and, and that's a spoiler alarm, but he finds out the truth that he was looking so much for is devastating, and he ends up blinding himself. He ends up taking his eyes out. So... Oedipus, as a representation of the quest for knowledge, the need to know everything about who I am, about my origins, about the truth about my family, and most scary truth, I think, is the truth about myself. Because Oedipus is certain that the killer is out there, that he's the wise king, the, the one who knows how to look and where to look, and that he will find the external evil that is lurking out there. But he gradually realizes that the evil wasn't external, that the evil was inside of him the entire time. He just wasn't willing to acknowledge it. And that's the moment when he blinds himself. So as you say, with the Bible, I think we also see it in the, in the Greek mythology and in the Greek narratives, that knowledge is, is so painful that people would prefer to blind themselves rather than to risk losing their lives as, as, or ruining their life as Oedipus did. Yeah, and you mentioned Plato, of course who in the Republic created the metaphor of the cave, but perhaps in what you're saying and what we're discussing, we need to live in the cave because we go outside into the sunlight, we experience a different kind of blindness. Um, uh, Ayelet, uh, your book of course touches on anti-Semitism in America, huge subject these days. What was your experience? Do you think American Jews are particularly um, sensitive or perhaps oversensitive or paranoid about anti-Semitism? I think I, I wouldn't risk answering that because I'm not based in America right now. I don't know how it feels to be Jewish in America right now. Um, so I feel it would be unfair for me to, to answer this question. I read a lot and I talk with people and I get completely different answers to this question from people who are saying um, that they don't feel anything into people who are saying that they feel that their kids don't feel safe right now at college or that their kids don't feel safe right now in high school. Um, 
perhaps, as you said, it's a, you have a very big country over there. Maybe it's it's varied. I don't know. We are speaking with Ayelet Gunda Goshen, uh, distinguished American, uh, not American. That was slip. Uh, author, Israeli author, and clinical psychologist. Her latest book is The Wolf Hunt, a novel. Um, we're going to take a brief break. I want to thank Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, for bringing us such high-quality guests as uh, Ayelet uh, Gunda Goshen. We'll be back in a second uh, to talk about Israel and trauma and her take on what's happening in Israel right now. So don't go away, anyone. We'll be back in about 33 and a half seconds. The news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with Ayelet Gundagoshan, the author of The Wolf Hunt, uh, A Wolf Hunt, The Wolf Hunt, not A Wolf Hunt, The Wolf Hunt, a novel. Uh, Ayelet, you're in Tel Aviv right now. You've written about Israel's trauma as a writer and a clinical psychologist. Um, was this the first time that you thought about nations and trauma in terms of what happened in October in Israel? Um, no, I've been dealing with it quite a lot because um, I work as a psychologist, but I was also working in the Israeli human rights movement. Um, and it was interesting for me, I think, for many years to see the parallels. Um, I'm working with patients who survived post-traumatic stress disorder and, and working with them, for me, it was shocking to think about how an entire state can be in, in a state of, of trauma um, or in PTSD. Uh, I think I see the parallels all the time, but right now with the, with the mass trauma of October 7th, then it's more vivid than ever. I remember living through 9-11 uh, in, in the United States. Is it equivalent or is it different? Is it because Israel's a smaller country? Um. I think two things make it a bit different, but there are also a lot of similarity. One thing is the fact that it's a very small country and a very collective uh, society. So everyone I know knows someone who was either murdered, wounded, kept hostage, or is a family member of someone who was directly affected by October 7th. I'm not sure if in America, you could say that the entire population knows someone that was directly affected that day. And so I think in that aspect, people are, I think everyone are one step away from someone who, who's going through something very difficult right now. Another thing is that what we saw in 9-11 in is intensified right now by the idea of live streaming. This also happened in 9-11. And the idea of when Hamas live streamed the massacre, we had a lot of people in Israel that didn't know where their family members were, from family members from the kibbutz 
on the border and on the on the southern border. So many people logged into Hamas media channels to try and find out if their family members are affected. And what they saw there haunts them until now so that even people who are not there physically when it happened expose themselves um, to things that, that I think no person should should ever see. So what we see right now is this really high percentage of, of post-trauma was people who wasn't necessarily geographically there, but just from witnessing it, um, it's, it's going to be very overwhelming. And I think this is something that you do know from America, like watching this live and having this flashbulb memories of it and how everyone can say where they were the minute that happened. Um, so I think this is something that you know. Um, and also the, the fact that it's ongoing. I mean, they did, as we speak right now, um, we have 136 uh, hostages. Um, and you're right about the Israeli society as, as a collective society because these 136 people, I think many people in Israel feel like, you know, these are our people, like our relatives, and that as a society, we share the blame for not protecting them, for not protecting our civilians, and that it's our job to, to get them back. One of the things you always hear in these incidents, great tragedies like 9-11 or, or October 7th, is that things will never be the same again. Everything is changed. Although to me as an outsider, what happened on October 7th is just in scale, something larger than um, than, than, than events that had happened before. Do you think in your mind that October 7th did change everything forever? Or is that just our response, our rather stereotypical, perhaps even thoughtless response to events that we can't really make sense of? Because after all, in the end, in the long run, things will get back to, quote unquote, a, a, a new kind of normal. It's a good question, and it could be that you're wiser than me because you're in San Francisco right now, and and I'm in Tel Aviv, and I think maybe you can see things from like my blind spots, because you're looking at Israel from far away. Maybe you see it better than I do. Right now, I feel that something crucial changed in our sense of security. Um, I think this is something that doesn't. I mean, I'm 42 years old. I don't remember myself ever being as as scared as I was uh, on October 7th when we got text messages from people locked in their houses and, and really getting it live. I mean, knowing that someone you know is there and that you can't help him is, I think this was something that was, was different. If you look at Jewish history of uh, pogroms, then this is not something new. This links back and, and you can say something like, you know, th this happened before and now it happens again and maybe we should be more resilient because this is part of our collective history. Um, but I think for many people in my generation, we wanted to think about it as history. And now we're forced to think about it as a present or as a continuous present. And, and this is, for me, it's shocking. So I really hope that within one year, I could look at it the way you look at it and say that this was a thoughtful, like 
that it was an automatic response to shock, saying things will never be the same. Uh, I really hope so, uh, because the alternative is scary. Yeah, as a clinical psychologist, what happens when an event triggers uh, a sense of history, which many people imagined was something that would was gone, that would never be recreated? You often hear that, uh, that we never imagined that this could happen again, that these full scale pogroms of one kind or other, mass killings, the were and many people talk about the worst killing of Jews since the Holocaust. As a psychologist, is that a good or a bad thing to trigger that history? Because some people might argue that it's unhealthy to imagine that you've put history to bed, that it no longer matters. I won't answer it as a psychologist. I'll, I'll answer as a mother for a second. My my younger boy um, didn't, didn't learn about the Holocaust yet because he's very young. He didn't learn about the pogroms. He didn't know anything about Jewish history because I always thought, I mean, if we don't let him watch violent films and that's just a film, why should we expose him to very violent facts that happened in reality before he's old enough uh, with the age limit? And then October 7th came and, and he was exposed to it because, you know, it, it was there. It wasn't a possibility to hide it from him. And I saw what it did to him. Uh, so if I have to say something from the individual level to, to the society level, I saw what it did to his basic trust in, in people. I wouldn't say humanity in people and his basic trust in the idea of being afraid of locking yourself up of not not wanting to to go outside of the house and when you're afraid of people you tend to react uh, in a more violent way because you're afraid so you're sure that everyone is here to to attack you then you either fight or flight and then the idea that you know when you're six years old it's okay but what happens if you're 26 and now everyone can get a gun? What happened if you're not suffering from direct PTSD? You weren't there on October 7th, but you watched the videos and you watched it in Hamas channels and, and you've read and watched every possible Holocaust film before that. And now they're handing over guns to everyone. Um, how will that affect us and how safe we will be here when, when this war is over? I think this is still to find. How we talked about uh, October 7th changing everything. How has it changed the, uh, the Israeli left or progressives in terms of the possibility of peace? I think you would find two very different um, reactions to, to this question. There are, there's a group of people who say we, we woke up. We now understand that you can never trust the, the Palestinians um, and that there can never be peace. I'm not part of this group of people. For me, October 7th uh, made it clearer than ever that if we ever want to, to have a safe existence here and, and to have a country of our own and to have our kids living in, in a quiet place, then we have to figure something out with the Palestinians and we have to come to an agreement. And even if the word peace is considered, um, I don't know, too lefty or too hippie right now, um, you don't have to call it peace, but you have to, uh, you can just call it a, an agreement. 
But I think without an agreement, then it will never be quiet, not for long. Headlines today, uh, uh, I, I yell at here about Hamas trying, uh, sort of floating a peace idea, of course, since October 7th. Um, Gaza has been quite literally flattened. Tens of thousands of Palestinians, particularly women and children, have lost their lives. Is the Israeli response a warning about revenge or the dangers of revenge? I I think the Israeli response was motivated a lot by the need to revenge and by anger. I ask myself, could we get more hostages back alive if we had acted differently? Um, I think we all have to face this question when we look at the, the destruction in Gaza. And when we look at our own hostages uh, that were taken alive and are now dead, um, I think this is something that we have to ask ourselves. Did we deal with it, not just with what happened on October 7th, but what happened afterwards in a way that was directed into getting back the hostages alive and fulfilling our commitment to our citizens that were taken? Or did we let the anger or did the government let the anger uh, lead uh, the decisions and the hostages paid a heavy price for that? It's all, of course, about forgiveness on both sides, although both sides will argue that they're the ones uh, who have who have been violated and there's no reason to, to forgive. Um, when it comes to your writing, particularly your, your fictional writing, how can we get from revenge to forgiveness? I think it's about the possibility of imagining something different. When you write a story, you have to ask yourself about the reality, which is different than the one that you're seeing right now. That's the basic magic of, of stories, I think that you enter a book and this is something different than what there is right now. And I think when we try to think about the day after the war, we have to ask ourselves, can we imagine a reality which is better than the one that we and the Palestinians are locked in right now? And Netanyahu and Ben Gvir and Smutrich on the Israeli right wing are saying no. You cannot imagine anything better or the only way to imagine something better is is to evacuate all palestinians and then on the other side hamas also doesn't want to imagine anything better or different and i just think that we have to trust that in each society the palestinian society and the israeli society you have enough individuals who are different than their governments you have enough people who are willing to try and imagine a better solution for both nations. And I think the Palestinians will have to prove it on their sides um, and that we will have to prove it on our side. The people you mentioned, particularly on the Israeli side, are all men. Seems as if most of the leaders of Hamas are men too. Um, your, your writing or your, your book, uh, your, your latest book, um, uh, The Wolf Hunt is about a mother. Do women a bit, are women better at not just forgiving, but forgetting. 
Because after all this, we talked about memory and history. To get beyond all this, we have to learn. Everybody needs to learn how to forget, don't they? But forget, not completely, just enough. It's a good question if it's about forgetting or if it's about accepting the fact that what happened happened and asking ourselves, okay, what are we going to do tomorrow? Are we going to build our future from the bricks of our past or are we trying to build something different? And I think many people in the Israeli left are talking right now about the fact that we have no women in the government, that perhaps if women were um, making the decisions or at least part of taking the decisions, um, then things would look different. Um, I, it's a good question. I think, you know, we're the, I have always this feeling when I gave birth to my um, daughter, there was also um, a war with Gaza. And I remember thinking when I was breastfeeding her that somewhere in Gaza right now, there's, there's a Palestinian woman breastfeeding her baby and that she just wants it to stop and I just want it to stop. And that if we were running it, then it would stop tonight so that we can put the babies to bed in the, in the right time and it will be quiet. Um, and I don't know if that's naive and emotional or if that's the, the truth and no one is willing to see it. I honestly don't know. Yeah, I just rewatched Spielberg's Munich where Golden Meir was featured as someone also intent on revenge after the, the killings of the Israeli athletes at, at Munich. So maybe women, whether it's Golden Meir or Margaret Thatcher, are not necessarily immune from revenge either. It's interesting because Goldemir was the one who at first didn't want to have peace with Egypt because she said it's better to have Sharm al-Sheikh, not return Sinai, to have Sinai without peace than to have peace without Sinai. And then there was the 73 war, the Yom Kippur war, that October war. And after that, Goldemir was very much part of the, the peace agreement with Egypt. So she was brave enough to change her mind. Final question, Ayelet. You had an interesting piece in uh, The Atlantic recently, the horror stories we tell ourselves in order to live. You've been living through a horror story. Some people would argue that the whole history of Israel, one way or the other, from every side is a horror story. Are horror stories then, in a sense, necessary? Some people warn us against horror stories, but there's a fetish with Horror stories, horror movies in America, are they actually, in, in an odd way, quite good for us? Um, I think we have an inner need to be exposed to horror stories. You can see it with children. No matter how much you try to shelter them from scary stories, they're the ones searching for them, right? They're coming to us and, and asking those questions. They're peeping into books and shows that we're telling them not to watch. That's exactly what they do want to watch. And you could say that it's because when we expose ourselves to a horror story, we have this controlled harm because we can push pause in every minute because we know that we're safe and we're watching somebody else suffer. So we're in touch with our darkest fears, but in a controlled way, in a way that makes us feel that the control is in our hand, on the one hand. But on the other hand, I think today with social networks, 
we're completely unaware to the fact that we're always one click away from something that will expose us to a horror story that will be too much to take. And then we expose ourselves to developing post-trauma and we're not even aware to the fact that we're doing it. And this is something that we saw in Israel and I think people should be more aware of in Israel and in America. Um, that if something big and bad happens, it can be a war and it can be a, a nature disaster. And you have it live streamed and, and videoed and people are watching it because they have this inner urge to expose themselves to their horror movies. And later we see those people suffering nightmares um, and flashbacks and intrusive memories. And we might be sipping poison out of our own will.